Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Venture, it is good that it's summer. It's officially here. I think most people are out of school at this point. I know the San Jose schools went pretty long into the summer, but uh, we're excited that it's summer here. We're excited that you're here. Excited for all of you that are joining us online. Want to welcome you as well. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, I'm excited. We're going to finish out today Romans chapter 8. I love this chapter. We're going to finish out and then take a little break from Romans. And then we're, uh, over the next few weeks, we've got Father's Day next weekend. That's going to be fun. The Father's Day, the car show. Um, also, want your best dad jokes. I'll have a prize for the best dad joke, which may be the lamest dad joke. So I don't know how I'm going to judge it exactly, but uh, want to hear your best dad joke with it. So send those in. And then uh, for a couple of weeks after that, we've got uh, Chuck is coming back. Uh, Chuck, who's our college pastor, is coming and bringing a message. So heard from a lot of you that really loved hearing from him. And then we got a special guest coming back. John Dickerson is going to come and preach. Yeah, isn't that exciting? So we're going to have John back for a couple of weeks with us. So a lot of fun things happening this summer and excited with that. But I'm excited today that we get to finish out this part of Romans because this section It's kind of a summary section for everything we've done the first eight chapters. And in it, Paul wants to set the stage for stepping back and going, in light of everything that we know as Christians, what Christ has done for us, what is our reality? And are we seeing reality the right way? You know, it was uh, back in the 90s, you remember the movie, The Matrix? Great movie, horrible series, but good movie. And it had that interesting scene in it, you know, where Neo, Keanu Reeves realizes that he's part of this artificial world. It's uh, artificial intelligence that he's been inserted in and the machines are in control. Remember the the character Morpheus sits in front of him and says, hey, you've got the choice. Are you gonna take the blue pill or the red pill? And the blue pill, you take the blue pill, you're just gonna go on in the reality as you think it is. But if you take the red pill, you're gonna actually see reality. And you know in the movie, in the whole series, he took the red pill. In fact, that scene has become part of common vernacular. People talk about red pill. Um, some, I've read in a couple of business books, CEOs say you gotta take the red pill if you're the CEO. You need to know the reality of what's going on in your company. Uh, you'll see it in the transgender movement. They, they use that terminology. There's a big men's movement, especially of young men red pill. And and they're kind of angry about it because they take the red pill. You find out the reality of what women are really like, what the dating world's really like. And you kind of look at it and you go, ugh. It's fascinating to me, often when the culture uses that, that metaphor, uses that thought, even in movies where it's like, we need to peel back so that you can really see reality. Reality is always a worse thing. It's always kind of set in this dystopian future. And and what I love about Romans 8, Paul, for a Christian, he says, hey, I want to give you a a red pill passage. I I want to peel back so that you can see reality. But here's the flip on it. Reality for a Christian is so much better than you could fathom. And Paul says, based on that reality, that's how we should live our lives. 
fact, if you look at it in this passage, Romans 8, turn in your Bibles to it, I identify four realities that are true for every Christian. And as I said, this is a summary passage for everything he's been teaching in the first eight chapters. And so he's been going through this, this wonderful thing called the gospel. Remember, that's the whole theme of the book of what Christ has done for us, that we've been justified, we've been forgiven, that we're in this process of sanctification, that the Holy Spirit's within us, that even when we struggle with sin, God's not done with us. We're in that process of it. And he comes to Romans chapter eight and in verse 31, he identifies the first reality. Read with me. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And so he said, what shall we say in light of everything I've told you in the first eight chapters? Well, here's the first one. If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, if, if you're a Christian, in light of everything I've taught you, you, you need to go back to this reality. Let's pull back the curtain a little bit. You can see the world as it really is. God's actually for you. You're gonna win no matter what. Now, that phrase, if God, in, in the Greek, it's actually, it, it's a construction where he's emphasizing since God is for us. He's not asking, mm, is God really for us? No, he's going, since God's on your side, who can stand against him? It'd be like if you uh, play pickup basketball, you're down at the gym, you got, you know, your gym rats, your normal guys that you play with, and, and you're there, you're the captain, you get to pick teams first, and you look in the group that you're picking from, and it's all the normal guys, and then standing there is Steph Curry. And you get to pick Steph first. Now I promise you, if it's a normal gym, normal guys, you know from that moment when Steph comes on the team, <laughs> we're winning today. This is a given. And, and, and that's what Paul wants us to embrace. He, he looks at us, he says, guys, here's what you need to embrace. Nothing you face can defeat you. He, he doesn't say that nothing will stand against you. In fact, remember, we've just come off a big section where he's taught on suffering. He's taught on the reality of it in life and what we face as Christians in it. But he goes, hey, even in the suffering, you need to embrace there is nothing that will defeat you. And, and so, so no matter what you come up against, there's no enemy that can defeat God. You know, there's a, a guy in church history I, I've always admired, Philip Melanchthon. And uh, he, he was best friends with Martin Luther. Now, a lot of us have heard Martin Luther's name. He was the, the, the father of the Protestant Re Reformation. You know, he nailed the 95 Thesis and he stood at the Diet of Worms and he was willing to stand strong. And he, he was a very brash, loud, bold person by personality. His best friend was Philip. And Philip was actually very gentle, very quiet, not bold by nature, but he's brilliant. In fact, Luther often credited Philip for many of the insights because his, his brain, Erasmus said that he was the greatest teacher of Greek and Latin in the world at that time. That, that's how well respected he was. It was Melanchthon that pointed out to Luther as they were studying in Romans, the church had translated at that time the word repentance, they would translate it as penance. And so what they were teaching is, man, if you've done something wrong, you need to pay penance. You need to pay for it. And as Melanchthon pointed out, he goes, you know, actually the word is repentance. It's a heart change. You need to confess it because of what Christ has done. 
When Luther was called before the church council, when, when everyone in the world turned on him, when he had to stand alone in that, Philip stood with him. And Luther loved the fight, but it didn't come naturally to Philip. It's interesting, when he was asked all throughout his life, Philip, how are you doing this? Philip, aren't you scared? Over and over again, he would go back to this verse, Romans 8, 31. And he would just say, if God's for us, who can stand against us? We have God on our side. Even after Luther died, Luther was buried, Melanchthon was buried right next to him. That's how close they were. And on his deathbed, when they came, the only thing he asked for, he asked for a pastor to come. He, his eyesight was dimmed. And he said, would you just read one verse for me? Romans 8, 31. That, that even in the face of death, I'm not scared. I know who's with me. I know who's for me. Guys, if you walked out with nothing else today, some of you need to walk out of here and make this your reality. Romans 8, 31, if you are the child of God, it's true for you. And the reality of the fact that God is actually for you and nothing overcomes it. And you can live in that truth. Look at the second reality, verse 32. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so Paul's pointing out here, God didn't withhold his own son from you. He actually sent his son to die for you. If he would give a gift like that, if he is so good to you, if he loves you so much that he would sacrifice his own son for you, is there anything good he's actually withholding from you? See, we can rest in the fact that nothing you need is withheld from you. Now, let me be clear. He doesn't promise that you get everything you want. <laughs> but, but I can trust that if I am the child of God, if, if God actually sent Christ to die for me, can't I trust that he's a good father and he always has my best at heart? That, that I can rest in that reality? You know, one of the passages that always convicts me, I keep hoping one of these times I'm going to read it and it doesn't convict me. It's Matthew chapter six, where Jesus is teaching there on anxiety and worry. And when he goes to that passage, he says, why do you guys worry so much? Why do you, and he points to birds and he points to grass and he says, God takes care of all these things. And then he points to the Gentile world. It's interesting. If you look at the passage when he says, Therefore, do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. He's talking about the people who are far from God, people who don't have a heavenly father. Man, of course they worry. Of course they're having to look out for themselves. Of course they're, they're stressed out all the time. He says, but your heavenly father knows that you need them all. So you have a dad. Remember we saw this in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit, one of the things he tells us is we can actually go to him as Abba Father. We can share the deepest parts of our hearts and lives. And, and it doesn't always come. He doesn't always give the gifts according to our time frame. He doesn't always use circumstances that we would choose in it. But learning 
to trust him, the reality of it. I want to read a longer section. It's from a woman named Nancy Kennedy, but I, I love how she writes how God has been teaching her and her husband through circumstances they wouldn't have chosen. L- listen as she says, I'm sitting in yet another hospital waiting room. Ever since my husband Barry first underwent open heart and quadruple bypass surgery 15 months ago, I've been in this waiting room or one just like it more times than I can count on one hand, waiting for him to come out of the operating room. In a little more than a year's time, my vocabulary has increased to include words and phrases such as aneurysm, atrial fib, an EP study with ablation. They all mean I have to put on a cheery face, kiss Barry goodbye, and promise I won't worry about him or forget to eat lunch and lock the garage door at night when he's at the hospital again. With all Barry's surgeries and procedures, we've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. One of the worst in our 32 years of marriage. Yet ironically, it's also turned out to be the best. I learned just how deeply Barry loves me. As he was all prepped and waiting to go into surgery to repair his aortic aneurysm, Barry looked at my friend Tara, who was waiting with us, and said, make sure Nancy takes care of herself. Promise me or else I'll worry. He wasn't worried about being sliced open again. He's worried about me. I came to faith in Christ three years after Barry and I married. And for almost 30 years, I prayed about my husband's relationship with the Lord. Then the day of Barry's open heart surgery, he looked at me and he told me that if he died, I'd see him again because he knew Jesus was his savior too. He prayed with me. He prayed with a friend. He prayed with his surgeon. Barry hasn't stopped praying. He prays with me every day. What I'd asked God for all these years to heal the spiritual rift in my marriage, to bring my husband and me close, God had given He'd perform heart surgery on both of us, ripping us apart and knitting us back together. Barry and I talk often about this past year, how it's been awful and awfully good. We wouldn't wish this kind of year on anyone and we wouldn't want to go through it again, but we're glad that it happened. I've heard that exact line from a lot of people who've been through hard circumstances and they'd say the exact same thing. We thank God for the good days and the bad because in all our days, God's held us both securely in his grip. We've known God's incredible kindness to us. Our hearts are in his hands. We've had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. And yet we praise God for it. Do you hear in her words? This is not the circumstances we would have chosen. This certainly in the path either one of us wanted but God is using it and he's good in it. And the reality for Christians, no matter what we face, remember what we looked at last week? For those who love God, he's able to use all things for our good. And that's our reality. Look at the the third one. The third one is nothing you have done can be held against you. Nothing you've done, look look at it as he says in verse 33. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? 
And so, so Paul says in this, it's what he started the chapter in. Remember that first verse? There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've committed, no matter what sin you did in the past, what sin you'll do in the future, there is no condemnation. There's no judgment over you if you're a Christian. And yet, do you live in that reality? Do, do you recognize that, that I don't have to get up every day and I'm, I'm having to earn my keep before God. I don't have to get up and pay for what Christ has already paid for. That I can trust him in that. And, and some of you, when, when he says there's no condemnation, some of you, you live every day under a sense of condemnation. Every day you're joining a chorus of what is accusing you and who is accusing you. I love the way Paul puts it here. He says, don't you recognize though, when you come to be judged, think of the courtroom. Who's the judge? It's Jesus. Who, who paid for it? Jesus. I mean, our whole judicial system, we work so hard to make sure there's no bias in it. There's not supposed to be at least. And then no even relationship. I remember years ago, I was called in for jury duty. It's a huge trial. They started with this huge pool and they started weeding us down. And I kept thinking, the more I kept hearing about it, I thought this is gonna take forever. I do not wanna be on this trial. But I was making it through the cuts and they, they finally get this group in, in a room together. And then they start going through like, it was a, a trial against a company. So they wanted to list different officers in the company. And do you have any relationships with any? Are you connected to this company in any way? Because they wanna make sure they weed you out. No relationship there. And, and finally, I remember the defense attorney finally went down to the judge and I, and I watched him in this big room and they're talking together kind of quietly. And then the judge leans down with almost this disgusted look and says, is there a Tim Lundy in the room? I was like, oh, in my own trial. And so, you know, I go down, you know, stand for the judge and they're there. And the judge disgusted with me goes, um, you don't have a relationship with anybody connected to this. I was like, uh, no, ma'am. And she said, the defense attorney goes to your church. <laughs> and we had about, you know, I mean, about 5,000 people in our church. So I, I didn't know everybody. But she looked at me, the next thing she said, she goes, I would think a pastor should know the people in his church. And I'm like, great, I'm on jury duty and now I'm getting lectured. And, and the defense attorney kind of spoke up and he goes, well, uh, your honor, it is a big church and maybe I don't attend as often as I should. <laughs> and, uh, you know. And so then the prosecuting attorney kind of leaned forward and he said, will this affect how you adjudicate? Will this affect your judgment? And, and I remember I stopped for a second, I thought about it and then I said, no. And he goes, why did you hesitate? I was like, I was thinking about it. And he got his pen and starts, you know, writing down. And I'm walking back to my seat thinking, I am out of here. There's no way he's keeping me. And sure enough, when they started reading names, I was top of the list. Why? Because the, the whole system is built in a way that no one's supposed to have an advantage to have a relationship. And, and, and Paul's pointing out here, he says, if you're a child of God, when, when you go into the courtroom of life, the person judging you is the one that died for you, who loves you, who's paid the penalty for you. 
And no one will ever be able to bring an accusation that sticks because anytime they point out what you did wrong, all Jesus has to do is point out what he did right for you and show you the scars in his hands and his side. Eternal evidence of a God who's paid it all. Now, is that your reality today? Do, do you live under that freedom and forgiveness today? Or do you listen to the words of that accuser, Satan, who loves nothing more than try to convince you to spend your whole life trying to earn back something that Jesus has already paid for? Paul said, face reality. The final one, look at the final one, it's the best one. Save the best for last in this. Look at it in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, nothing's gonna separate you from the love of Christ. And then verse 36, kind of a strange verse in the middle of it. He says, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's actually quoting Psalm 44. This is a very familiar Psalm where, where David's crying out and going, hey God, when we face all this, when we face persecution, when we face, it feels like we're being sheep that are slaughtered. Even in the face of that, Paul's writing here and he says, yeah, but God's there with you and you've not been separated. Look, look how he says this. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what he's saying in this is nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. And, and when you think about that, if nothing can separate me from God's love, and by the way, God is love, Nothing can separate you from God. I, I, I love how he puts it in it. Look, look at this verse. He says, in all these things, look how he describes us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I don't know about you. Most days, I don't even feel like a conqueror, much less more than a conqueror. More than an overcomer. But it's not based on me. He doesn't say we're more than conquerors because we're such awesome people. No, we're more than conquerors. Why? Through him who loved us. Because see, he's a conqueror. It's based not on who we are. It's based on the one who loves us. That's where the value is. You know, back when uh, my kids were real small, all of them had different stuffed animals, different blankets, you know, the security blankets. They had one son in particular, he had a little silk blanket, he called it Silky. And he loved Silky. And woe be it to the household if it was bedtime and you couldn't find Silky. No one's going to bed till Silky was found. He loved it, I mean, he loved it longer than most of our kids. Most of our kids, you know, kind of outgrow. He kept loving it, kept loving it. And, and over the years, Silky went from this nice little silk blanket to the, like this ratty old strand. Now, if you were to walk in and see it laying there, you would think it's garbage and you'd probably throw it away. But in our household, it was really valuable. 
Not because of the value of the little ratty strand, but because of the person that loved it, adored it. Guys, when scripture describes us, describes us at our best, what we brought to the equation, it describes us like dirty rags. And if we were basing our value just on us, it's not a good equation. But it's based on him who loves us, who died for us, who gave everything. And, and, and I love the way it describes it. It wasn't just this, oh, I love you, and it was a one-time thing, or when you came to Jesus. He loves you, and he never lets you go. Look, look how it describes it there. Neither death, even on your deathbed, you know he loves you there. Life, no matter what you're facing in life right now, he loves you there. If you're facing angels or rulers, it doesn't matter if it's demons, it doesn't matter if it's Satan himself. Things present, whatever's going on in the world right now, whether it's the economy, whether it's the elections, whether it's a pandemic, God's not let go of me. Things to come, even what's coming around the bend. Powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation. Nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know why I love that last phrase? It's because I'm a part of creation and I don't even have the ability to separate myself from his love. He doesn't let go, ever. And we can live in that reality. We can know that truth about it. We can experience it every day. Guys, these are our realities, these four things. In fact, as we, we go through them, let me just ask you again. Do you believe these things are true? Nothing you face can defeat you. Nothing you need is withheld from you. Nothing you've done can be held against you. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Is this your reality today? And I would say for me and for many of us, I mean, if you've been around the church a long time, you'd kind of go, amen, amen. Oh, yes, 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 yes. But it is so easy to make this a reality up here. But is it a reality down here? at a heart level. And if it really is our reality, shouldn't it impact the way we live? And so just as we finish out, I, I just would challenge you, if this is your reality, here's some of the things I think we would base off of that, that we would do as a result of that. Here's the first one, if these things are true, then I think we should fear less. We shouldn't be so afraid. If, if honestly, if we believe that God is for us, we should fear less. Now, as I say that, let, let me be real careful because some of you, by your wiring, you're a very fearful person. And if you study the brains, some people are more fearful, more anxious than others. Uh, it's it, it literally based on the chemicals that flood your brain. And some of you, any stimuli can make those chemicals flood in a way that fear or anxiety spikes really quick. Others don't have those chemicals at all. I mean, like even to an unhealthy level, they're never scared of anything, not a good thing. I, I say all this, because anytime you talk about fear and, and, and fearing less, it's very easy, especially if you're a more fearful person to compare yourself to others or to beat yourself up over it. Here's what I would say is the challenge. If God is really for me and with me, here would be my goal. I wanna fear less today than I did yesterday. And, and I always tell my kids when they were playing sports, 
Because a lot of times they'd get real discouraged. They go, I'm not as good as them. I can't do this. And, and I always tell them, as long as you keep comparing to the best people on the team, you're going to be discouraged every day. In fact, the only person you should ever compare yourself to is you. And so our goal is you get better tomorrow than you are today. Let's practice to get better tomorrow. That's all you can do. And I'd say the same true here. When you think about fear, don't think about anybody else. Don't think about how anybody else approaches this. Just think about you and you and God. And you go, God, what would it look like for me to live in less fear today than I did yesterday? Now, here's the challenge. We, we, we tell ourselves that we will fear less if we know more. And if I can get more information, and so I heard about this new disease children can have, so I'm gonna research everything, every childhood disease that any child could ever have. And I heard about what's going on in the world, and I heard about this, and we get more and more information thinking that I'll fear less if I know more. How's that working for us, by the way? We live in the information age, and we fear more than any group that's ever walked this planet. It's not really working. Here's what I would say in it. You'll only fear less when you know God more. It's counterintuitive, but you don't have to study that out there. Spend time with him. Stay close with him. That's the challenge of the verse. Paul didn't say, hey, we don't have to fear anything because we're such strong people. He said, no, you don't have to fear because God's with you. And nothing will defeat you because God's with you. Years ago, when I worked construction, in college, I worked construction. I didn't have any money, so sometimes I'd have to stay out of school a little bit or i work every summer. And it was really hard. We, we were building these huge warehouses. It was in Memphis, Tennessee, hot, 100-degree days, pouring concrete all day long, tilt wall construction. But it was good money. And, and the first time I went out there, I mean, I went straight from a college classroom onto a construction job site, big job site, all these different crews working, and I didn't know what I was doing skinny as a rail. And, and by the grace of God, the assistant superintendent on that site, a guy named Bo, took me under his wing. And Bo was this big, burly man, just big, huge, powerful. I, I just remember I was always amazed at him. There was nothing he couldn't do. Any piece of equipment, anything out there. And so he would just kind of show me the ropes and kind of point out things and help me out with it. I remember one day he came over and he said, hey, we need to talk. If you ever get in a fight out here, let me tell you what you need to do. And I was like, hey, time out. Can we go back to the first sentence there? <laughs> like, Bo, I'm not planning on getting in a fight out here. He goes, yeah, nobody ever plans on it, but be prepared for it. He said, if you get in a fight, here, get your hammer. Take your hammer out, but don't hold it by the handle. He said, it's too easy for somebody to pull it out of your hand. Or if you actually connect, you could really hurt somebody if you hit them with a hammer hit. He said, what you wanna do is take your hammer and stick it right here in your hand. Put the hammer head right there and then stick the handle between your fingers. And you can wrap your hand around that hammer head and then nobody can pull it out of your hand and you can beat them with it, but you're not gonna do too much damage. <laughs> and again, I was like, Bo, if there's a fight, I might throw my hammer, but I'm running. I think I can outrun anybody here. I didn't think about it a few months later. It was a Saturday and Bo and I were out on the site together alone. And uh, we, we was at this stage of the construction. The iron workers had put these steel columns up, 
but they weren't quite level and we needed the bricklayers to come on Monday. And so we were out there and he was way across the slab looking through a level and I had this big wrench and he would kind of tell me left or right. And I, you know, I'd which direction to see if we could get the columns leveled up. What I didn't know during that time is there was tension with the iron workers union and the construction company. It was a time when they were trying to break up the unions with it. So they were very protective about their jobs. And so I'm out there and we're going and suddenly I look up and there's these three iron workers there. They had driven up and they walk up. And one of them calls out, he's like, hey, you, you know that that's an iron worker's job you're doing. Remember, I'm real dumb at this point. So I said, oh, don't worry, fellas. We don't mind doing it. Enjoy your Saturday. And, and then he, he said it again. And this time he got a little closer, a little harsher. He said, no, I don't think you're hearing me. That's our job. And I, I kind of was aware. I was like, ooh, that was a little harsh. And suddenly out of nowhere, Bo was right next to me. He had run all the way across the slab. I mean, and it was a long distance and I never saw Bo run anywhere. He's a big guy. But he came in right next to me and he stuck his finger out and he looked at me and said, if you did your job right the first time, we wouldn't be out here. And I thought, well, that, that was a little harsh too, Bo. <laughs> Here's where it all came together for me. I looked down in Bo's hand. He had his hand wrapped around his hammer and he's holding it there. And I was like, we're about to have a fight. <laughs> and so I grabbed my wrench, you know, I'm kind of trying to look tough with the wrench, which it wasn't working. And I'll never forget the guys, all three of them, they kept looking back and forth. And every time they would look at me, they'd get this kind of smile on their face like, oh yeah, we can kill him. But then they would look at Bo and they'd all get this expression like, oh man, if that big guy gets me, he's gonna knock the snot out of me. And one by one, they started backing up. They said, we're cool, we're good. Just remember, don't do it again. And they got in their car and they left. And as they were driving off, I stepped forward and I said, yeah, you didn't want any of this, did ya? <laughs> Bo, where are you? <laughs> I knew what had happened that day. It wasn't me. In fact, I would say for the rest of that job site, I always knew where Bo was at all times. Did my best to try to stay close to him. Because this is what Paul's teaching here. If it's just you and me and all the enemies and all the things we face in the world, of course we're gonna be scared. Of course, we'll live in fear all the time. But God is with you. What, what would it look like instead of spending so much time studying what's out there, we spent more time with the God who loves us and the God who's conquered all. Second thing I'd say with this, if these are true, then we should worry less. <laughs> We should worry less. That's what Jesus taught. Remember what Jesus said in this? He says, you're only gonna worry less when you seek his kingdom more. That's the only way you'll worry less. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. 
There will always be a thousand reasons to worry every day. And the more you spend time seeking them, you're gonna find them and you're gonna worry more. Jesus said, what, what if you just reverse the equation and you actually believe that God's kingdom was true? You actually believe that as a child of God, I'm a citizen of that kingdom. And, and all of my security and all of my reality started there. Let me challenge you to do this. If you struggle with worry, because I, I can do that and I can get anxious about things. If you struggle, the next time you're worrying, you're worrying about your kids, you're worrying about the economy, you're worrying about the elections, all those things. Here, here's what I would ask you to do in that moment. Worry about God first. You say, what do you mean with that? Worry for God. So the next time you see the elections in whatever party you like or what that, and you go, this is really bad in that. At the top of your list, start worrying, oh man, how is this election gonna impact God? This is gonna be bad for God. What is God gonna do if he gets in office? Or you look at the economy and you go, man, this is bad. Look at the economy, worry for God. Just go, I hope God doesn't run out of money. Man, I hope God, what God doing about gas prices? Now, as I say this, we laugh. Why? Because it's silly, isn't it? It's silly to worry for God. There's literally not a thing that'll happen on this planet that will shake or worry or rattle or do anything to God's kingdom. And guess what? That's home for us. So, so what if we took that to the top of the list first? instead of the things that we focus on. And we actually believed that more and sought that more. Third thing with it, embrace humility, embrace humility. If we're the people that have no condemnation, shouldn't we be the most humble people on this planet? When we realize how much we've been forgiven. That's what I think the point of living in undeserved grace produces a life of humility. Humility's challenging because you don't ever gain humility by studying humility. You just get proud about how much you know about humility. It really is true. You sit there and go, oh man, I know more about humility than anyone else. Oh, really, excellent, great. It, it, it's counterintuitive, you only gain humility when you really rest in grace. And, and if we're the people who've been forgiven everything, if we're the people who give this undeserved grace every day, shouldn't Christians be the most humble people out there? In fact, it, it takes humility to receive the grace because you realize you can't do it. I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you get a really, somebody like lavishes you or gives you something really nice there's that awkward thing of you, you love receiving it, but then it's also awkward that you have to receive it. It takes humility to receive it. I remember years ago when the kids were little, I had a friend of mine and, and he was really wealthy and he owned a house, a, a nice vacation house down on the Florida coast. And he, he called, he said, hey, this summer, if you guys want to use the house for a week, go down there. We'd love to have you. We're not going to be in it. And so I was like, this is awesome. And so we scheduled the trip. And since this resort area we couldn't afford otherwise, great house. And about a week before the trip, he called, he said, hey, change of plans. It looks like my schedule's freed up. We're going to be down there. And so I was ready, you know, back out. Oh, okay, I get it and everything. He goes, no, 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 man, we're more excited. We want a vacation with you guys. 
He goes, so we'll be in our house, but I, I rented a house right by it for you. And remember, this is this luxury area, so I, I couldn't fathom. Well, actually I could, I went online, I had to find out. <laughs> and, and I looked at it and I was like, oh, I'm not comfortable with this. And I called him and I was like, look, I, it was fine when it was your house, you were, you were sharing what you have, but I, I don't know that I'm comfortable with, I mean, you guys, it's a lot of money. And he said, well, we have a problem, don't we? He said, here's our problem. He goes, I'd love to vacation with you. I can't think of a better week. But you can't afford where I want to stay. And I don't want to stay where you can afford. So it looks like you're just going to have to receive this. Or it's going to ruin the whole thing. And as I thought about it, what, what I was wrestling with, I mean, I could kind of go, oh, I didn't want him to have to spend all that. The reality was it was part of my pride to receive. At a core level, the gift of the gospel is more valuable than anything anyone's ever given you. And Christ pours it out every day. He pours out grace every day. I think when that is really our reality, when we embrace that as reality, I think it's the most humbling thing every day. And if we want to really know if we're living in that reality, Christians should be the most humble people on this planet. And if we're not, there's a disconnect somewhere. I'll give you the final one. Final one is just love more. And I say that if, if we're the people that have never separated from Christ's love, if he's lavishing his love on us, shouldn't it come out to us? Shouldn't that just be part of life that we love people that are actually hard to love? We love people that don't deserve to be loved because that's how he loved us, remember? That's why God initiated it so that his love could be experienced on this planet, not only from him, but through us. And in counseling, there's a saying they use a lot of times in counseling. A lot of times in counseling, you'll hear this saying, hurt people, hurt people. And it, it really is true. Someone that's been damaged, someone that's been really hurt in life that never deals with it, they often, they're hurting others as well. There's a lot of you, you maybe you've been hurt in life, you realize the person hurting me, they were hurt as well. And, and it's why often you, we should go to counseling. That's why we should deal with our own hurts so that we don't end up hurting the people that we love through it. Hurt people, hurt people. But isn't the inverse true? See, I think for Christians, our phrase should be loved people, love people. And, and we're the most loved people. We're the most loved people on this planet. And, and so when people interact with Christians, man, they should experience love from us and through us that they don't get anywhere else. Not because they deserve it. But remember when Christ gave it to us? It's what we didn't deserve it. Guys, I just would today as we step back, just ask you, is this your reality? I, I said a lot of statements that we would amen at the beginning. But you know, I think these last four categories is really how you check. Is this something I just believe up here? Or is this true in here? 
My prayer for each one of us today, my prayer is this this reality, we would step back again and we go, yeah, God is with me, God is for me. I'm gonna choose to be less afraid today than I was yesterday. God is not withholding anything good from me. And so I'm gonna look to his kingdom instead of worrying so much about my kingdom. God has forgiven me. And that humbles me. And I'm going to treat people out of that position of forgiveness instead of the pride of accomplishment. And if nothing else, I would hope you'd walk out today and go, you know, God loves me and he's never going to let go of me. And so it gives me the ability to love people (laughs) that maybe doesn't come naturally to me but it comes because I'm a loved person and I'm gonna choose to love people today. Let's pray. Father, we come, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you that, that what we've been talking about, these are not just platitudes. These are not just statements. These are reality for your kids. You've made it reality. Lord, I I pray, would you open our hearts and minds today to actually walk and live in your truth instead of the lies that we so often tell ourselves. Lord, that we would rest in the freedom we have in you. That we would trust the goodness of your gifts to us. That we would believe there is no condemnation. That we could love in a way that does not come natural to us because we have been the people loved most by you. Lord, I I thank you. I thank you for this truth and I thank you most of all for the Savior who accomplished it for us on our behalf. And we pray this in his name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.